0: I love the generative moment during a really deep talk when the world falls away and you forget time and place. A really engaging conversation can do this. I've always had listening as my superhero power. I think listening helps build a great conversation. Real listening is done with an open curiosity and very little of your own agenda. It may sound easy, but it can be really hard to do. I like to make connections between ideas and people. Why do we connect with other human beings? I think it's part of the hierarchy of needs. Comfort, connection, community. I don't like the question, what do you do? I don't equate what you do with who you are. We all have multiple interests, passions, hobbies, families, backstories, and future scapes that make us who we are. Every interaction changes us, some in big and some in small ways. I hope this podcast changes you. Inside of a drop of water. You are everything. You are a complete biosphere of microorganisms and life force. You are understanding and movement. You are lost and found like the mysterious sock that emerges from the dryer without its mate. There is light and dark. There is aging, then death. It's all the same. We are here and they are there. We encapsulate all these tiny moments on a long continuum. There are beautiful and elegant loops in your life. There are beautiful and elegant loops in your life. Like light and water, You bend and refract into yourself. Your beauty creates this beauty. Your pain creates this pain. The waves carry you forward. Your life is all connectedness and all-knowing. You are a precious drop of water for a thirsty soul. friend, Charles, is solid. He's a coach and someone who I've always depended on for a thoughtful conversation. He reached out because he was interested in learning more about podcasting, and he was considering starting his own, which would be great. We ended up having a deep conversation about race, as well as his upbringing and thoughts on coaching. I always appreciate Charles as a teacher and an all-around good human. You can find him at www. Charles Ennis, which is C-H-A-R-L-E-S-I-N-N-I-S-S dot com. That's Charles Ennis dot com. .com. So this is Hi Felicia podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Ryan. My guest today is Charles Ennis. Uh, Charles is originally from New Orleans. He came up north to study physical therapy at Boston University. In college, he loved anatomy and psychology. He currently works as a corporate wellness coach and is passionate about helping others. In an effort to make the world a healthier and happier place, he's hoping to add his voice to the public dialogue about all things well-being and may one day have his own podcast. I don't think may one day. I think he's going to have his own podcast. So today's guest, Charles Inez. So you and I have known each other for a while. I feel like I met you very early on in my well coaches training. Am am I wrong in saying that?
1: No, I think that's right. We've probably known each other if I had to go back 2014. So yes, five, six years, something like that.
0: Yeah. And um, did we meet at one of the local coach socials or did we meet at um, one of the conferences?
1: I think it would have been first one of the well coach kind of alliance, yeah. yeah, meetings.
0: So, what was it about Boston University that you you decided to leave uh, Louisiana to come up north for school?
1: Yeah, it was really their physical of every program, and it seemed like the stars kind of aligned. I had committed to going to St. Louis University. Um, they had a direct entry program where you could just get in and, you know, you get your master's degree. But when I went to visit, I just didn't have this great vibe about the university. And late in the game, BU sent me a letter saying, hey, based on your math scores, we think, you know, you could be a candidate for engineering school. And I thought, I'm not really interested in engineering, but do you have a physical therapy school? And it actually is a really cool story. Um, At that point, my dad had driven me to a bunch of colleges and um, there was no, we didn't have enough time or money for him to take me up to BU. So I went to my high school counselor and I said to him, you know, I'm really curious about Boston University. You know, I saw St. Louis, but it didn't really, you know, it didn't really grab me. And his thing was, you can't go to a college unless you visit, you know, that just wouldn't make a lot of sense. And so he turned to me and he said, I got an idea. I'll take you to visit. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. And so he was originally from Pittsburgh. And so his thought was that we drive up, visit his mom, and then he'd take me over to BU for a visit. And so he's like, run it by your parents. Make sure it's okay. And I'll talk with you at the beginning of next week. And so I get back to school. I meet with him. And he says, Charles, I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is I can't bring you to Boston. The good news is, I went to all the teachers, and we got enough money to buy you a flight. Plus, I called ahead and arranged for someone to like tour you around. Oh my! And God. so, yeah, yeah, he was like an angel, got a sent from above, kind of just give me a little nudge. And when I came up to BU, I loved the building. The people I met were so um, smart and articulate, and just like I felt like I was with my people. Um, <laughs> I don't know how much Pizza 3 Unos influenced my decision, but I did have my first Chicago Classic. And I remember calling my dad and be like, Dad, the pizza up here, it's like great. And um, so all of those things kind of um, really kind of drew me in. And the kicker was that um, my high school track coach called the BU track coach. And he said, oh, well, with that as his kind of experience and skills, he would definitely have a place. And so the kind of draw for me to be able to come to BU – and uh, into one of the top PT programs in the country and be able to be a student athlete, that just really kind of cinched it all. And it, I really did. I loved it. I had a great time at BU.
0: Wow. And you, did you get your master's and your doctorate from there as well?
1: Yeah. And so physical therapy education has been evolving. Um, when it first started, it was a bachelor's degree, maybe like 30 years ago. And then it evolved to a master's, which was the program I entered. and Soon after I graduated, BU evolved their program to a doctorate degree program. And so for all of us who had been through the master's curriculum, they said, if you make up this additional half a semester worth of credits, we'll grant you the doctorate degree. So um, while I was working, I took classes um, online at night for about two years, and then was able to, to earn my doctorate through BU also.
0: And what was it about physical therapy? That kind of drew you in I've had my own experiences with PT so I know when you get a great PT they can they can kind of change your world um and when you don't match up with the right person which is an experience that I had most recently it can be (laughs) devastating I think too it's a
1: it's one of these challenges about medicine I know I'm I'm digressing and thinking about this that Sometimes you're just matched perfectly with the provider, you know, temperament, um, you know, knowledge, their skill set, and it's just like they know exactly what they can do to help you in. And sometimes they don't. And so I totally recognize that, you know, sometimes even the most well-intentioned health professionals are not capable of providing the best service or an answer. But for me, I was an athlete growing up and I was injured often. And one kind of experience in particular, I injured my hip, and so I got a cortisone shot, then I got anti-inflammatory drugs, then I got another cortisone shot, and my hip still hurt. Um, my aunt actually suggested that I try yoga, and my response to her at 15 was, what's yoga? <laughs> <laughs> and so again, this is you know 30 plus years ago. And so she gives me a yoga book, and I basically did yoga every day during the summer, Rehab my own hip, went back to playing sports. And sometime later, I got injured again. And just by chance, the attend, the physician that I went to go see was a sports medicine doctor. Mm-hmm. And he asked me, he's like, have you ever been to a physical therapist? And I'm like, no. So he sent me to a physical therapist. She did her evaluation, looked at me. And I was like, wait, you can use exercise to get people back when, they, when they're injured? And so I was like, that's what I want to do. And so it was that experience and kind of being injured and going to see a physical therapist that made me interested in wanting to to do that um, as my career.
0: How have you seen um, PT change since you've been in that industry?
1: I'll say this. I loved my education as a physical therapist, but I haven't spent a lot of my post-academic career working in a clinical setting. Um, And so there may be some clinicians that are more on the pulse of how PT has evolved. But what I will say is that The concept of evidence-based medicine and functional movement um, was something that wasn't as prevalent when I first got into the industry. So as an example, um, if someone had back pain way back when, let's call it 30-plus years ago, treatment was pretty limited, massage, ice, e-stem, hot packs, and that was kind of the extent of the therapy. It was mostly those simple modalities But, um, as it kind of evolves, we started looking at the body more as a chain and looking at mechanics and looking at how does the body work? How does it move? And we started maybe treating movement dysfunction a little bit differently than just pain. And so, um, so yes, I think that, that now, again, there, there still may be some areas of therapy where it's just kind of cold ice massage, but, um, but I think that there's a... In some practices, there's a lot more emphasis placed on movement dysfunction uh, and, uh, and that whole functional kind of movement concept.
0: So I just want to reflect, um, when you were talking, I, I could see you light up and I could see like the teacher in you come out. So my, you know, having had an experience with you as a as a coach, group leader, and sort of watching you in throughout the kind of interactions we've had around coaching or whatever I can see how like the teaching aspect is a real important part of um, how you take your knowledge base and sort of communicate out what what you know melding a lot of different uh, I don't know I guess interest fields knowledge so that was just an yeah. really interesting thing watching you. And I'm like, I was like really into what you were saying, but then I was also like, wow, I'm like kind of watching you in your zone.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing is I almost left physical therapy school to pursue education. Um, it was it was just, again, you know, you have plans no matter who you are, but then life introduces you to things that didn't change your plans. When I was in uh, freshman year in, in uh, college, actually, I met someone who had done an AmeriCorps program called Summerbridge. And the goal of Summerbridge was to take high school and college students, um, have them mentor kids in the middle schools um, who were in the public school system during the year, help them with homework, do mentoring projects, and then in the summer, we would actually teach classes, like six week classes. And so that first summer I taught, after freshman year, I taught math and French in New Orleans, to a bunch of seventh and eighth graders. Uh, And then I spent two years in Cambridge teaching uh, chemistry, human biology, PE. And so these first three years of my college experience was me being involved with this just awesome community of people. Um, Some of the courses were team taught, and it just was I mean, it was it was life changing. Those three years in, in that AmeriCorps program where I was teaching and mentoring were life changing. And I thought, this is what I want to do. And when I talked to my college advisor, what she said to me was, you know, if you're really passionate about education, that's a good thing. But if you finish your master's degree in physical therapy, you still would have lots of opportunities to be an educator. And so that kind of kept me in physical therapy school. And as it turned out, it was the best move because I I ended up having a bunch of teaching uh, positions that were related to my physical therapy experience. I taught anatomy and physiology at a massage therapy school. I taught anatomy labs at Boston university where I dissected and taught at the college level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for more than 10 years, I taught seminars for personal trainers. And a lot of it was because I had a strong scientific background and I could translate that knowledge about anatomy to them in hopes that they'd be more effective and, um, and personal trainers. And so, so yeah, so I, I do feel lucky that I was able to have a lot of teaching, um, uh, positions and, I, I definitely strongly identify with being a teacher.
0: So, talk to me a little bit about um, about New Orleans and growing up in that city, and and what that experience was like. Um, I don't know that you've ever told me, but I know I've seen pictures on Facebook. Like, I, obviously, I can tell your mom is super proud of you. She she gets dressed up, and when you guys are <laughs> 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 how proud? Yeah. You, so.
1: Yeah, she gets dressed up for anything. That's kind of her thing now. And I always joke with my friends because, of course, pre-pandemic, she was going to church all the time. And every Sunday, she feels like she has to wear a different outfit. And so after she goes to a spot in the church where there's like a blank white wall, she takes a picture. She texts me the picture. Then she posted it on Facebook, and if I don't respond, she'll call me and say, "Hey, did you get my text? Did you see my picture?" I'm like, "Yeah, mom, I saw what You went to church today." So, yeah. <laughs> she doesn't need a, She doesn't need too many reasons to dress up. She likes she likes dressing up and she likes modeling. So.
0: She have a Sunday a different kind of Sunday hat every Sunday
1: or. Oh, she's got hats. Yep, she's got her hats. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah, New Orleans is, it's an interesting town. And I always say to people, I feel blessed in a way to have lived in the South and in the North because the cultures are different, but, you know, in complementary ways. Um, I In New Orleans, I feel people are very friendly mm-hmm. um, and open and so like i I feel like i have that kind of down home kind of open hospitality kind of personality i was really fortunate that when i was younger most of my family lived very near each other um, an experience that i don't know if many people have so um, at one point my dad's family almost all lived on the same street and my mom's family so it was like uh, my uncle had a an aunt and three cousins lived in a house down the street and then it was my grandfather grandmother, um, aunts, uncles, cousins, like all in the same house. So all very close. Uh, my mom's family was pretty similar. Our neighborhood was this quaint little neighborhood in Violet, Louisiana. And it the neighborhood is, is like, like a four by four. And so it was A Street, B Street, C Street, Canal Street, first, second, third, fourth. And so like you just had like these streets like this. And so um, I lived on Third Street next in a two-family house next to my mom's sister, my uncle, my three cousins. Wow. Uh, if I jumped the fence in my backyard, I had cousins on Fourth Street. If I went to Second Street, it was my grandmother, grandfather, great-grandmother, great-grandfather, oh my, my mom's brother, my aunt, and my three cousins. So literally, like, we were all just, like, right there you know i'd be walking down the neighborhood and someone say hey i know your dad and i'm like no that's my uncle you know because i look so much like him everyone thought that i was his son and so um so yeah that was that was really nice my my cousins and i when we talk we we reminisce about the time when we just were all so close because you know now we're spread out all over the place
0: Everybody everybody knew what was going on you couldn't do
1: too much. It's people would say that all the time. I'm gonna tell your mom. I'm gonna tell your dad. I'm gonna tell your. Gra- they just they would threaten you, and you'd be like, okay, don't tell them, don't tell them. But you know, I look back, and as much as as kids, we'd roll our our eyes and be upset. The community, like, it's it's just such an important thing, just from a well being perspective overall, to have the community kind of have your back and to be watching out for you, and and yeah, it's you know. I missed it. I definitely miss it. You know, yeah, feeling like everybody around the neighborhood kind of had some stake in what you were doing.
0: And that's an amazing sense of legacy and history, also to be connected with. Like most people don't. I mean, it's so. My, most people might have family within the same town, but not not in that close geographic space. And also, there. You know, I I didn't grow up with any grandparents. They were. Um, my my mom's parents were dead before I was born, and my um, my father's mother died when I was very young, and his father died when I was in high school, so I really didn't have any sense of what a grandparent was, um, and I had no knowledge of great-grandparents whatsoever. How much do you remember about your great-grandparents?
1: Uh, a pretty good bit. Um... I think, well, my great-grandmother on my mom's side lived to be 95. Wow. And so my mom was around for a long time. And, you know, uh, so my mom and papa, and then my grandparents on that side, mammy and pappy. Um, and so I, I forget exactly. Papa, I believe my great-grandfather was the first of the four of them to pass. I was a teenager so you know like I was old enough to really remember him I wasn't like young you know like four or five I was the teenager and we joked about you know yeah so many things <laughs> about papa drinking or about getting mad at chickens and dogs and the errands he would send us on and you know and he uh his language as he got older was it was harder to understand and so a lot of times it took Two or three of us to translate. So, like, he called one of us, but two of us would listen in. And I I think he said this. I think he said that. And then, you know, and he, you know, when we got it right, he would kind of acknowledge that we got it right. But, uh, but yeah, it was. uh, I I remember. Yeah, I remember Papa fondly, and like I said, my mom was around till I was graduated college and beyond. So, so, so yeah, she was. um, She was a very strong but fair person and um like we all yeah like i don't ever really remember getting mad at mama like i remember getting mad at mammy <laughs> she was a little more of a disciplinarian but like with Mama, it was more i don't know i felt like i looked at him with more reverence and just like whatever she needed like we just all kind of just we just did it for her like it was yeah it was definitely different like one of the things like as the cousins got older we would take turns Getting my mom ready for church. So it's like, okay, who's going to get my mom today? Okay, you go. And so we'd have, and it would take her a long time to get to the car. We just have to walk with her and, you know, get our walker in the trunk and then get her to church. And so if you were taking my mom to church, you would have to be ready early. <laughs> and so, but yeah, but like, and yeah, I don't, maybe I'm remembering it different, but I remember just being like, okay, it's my turn. I'm going to get my mom and, you know, and so, yeah, so I, I remember from that, from that perspective, just the, the matriarch of the family, you know, that we all just, we did what we could to take care of her. And that was just, that's just what we did. You know what I mean? It wasn't, it didn't feel like a burden. It was just like, you know, go bring, go bring food to my mom, go help my mom, go do this. My mom needs that. And yeah. So
0: one of the things that you um, taught in a group coaching class that I took with you was about, um, I'm going to say this wrong, but you it, jump in because I think you'll know where I'm going, but it's it's the hierarchy of needs is the pillars. And isn't community one of those?
1: Oh, okay. Maybe we were talking about dimensions of wellness or life foundation. Yeah. Yeah. And under that, thinking about um, social well-being. Yeah. And so, so, yeah, so how, how community or how your social well-being is tied to all those other Aspect, so
0: it's amazing because a lot of folks have to build that for themselves I mean I would say your experience is, is amazing but perhaps not as common like you're you're growing up that way in in getting a sense of um, needing to take care of grandparents or great grandparents or having cousins that close by so you you were indoctrinated in that sense of community so you you know you knew foundationally what that was where a lot of us if we don't grow up with it we have to figure it out and build it for ourselves
1: yeah yeah i could see that and i i mean of course community can mean a lot of different things um what i'm noticing from my experience is that a lot of us have to reconstruct it you know because you know when you're born into an area where all your family's around you and your everything's made but then you go away for college and okay now you got to meet new people you got to put more support system in place but now after college your friends move away now you're there by yourself and and so and i definitely know that i've noticed as i've gotten older that um not having the same close knit community i i definitely feel it you know yeah. and so once you're aware of it then you, you know you do your best to kind of reconnect with your friends and 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 do your best to to build something that's supportive
2: mm-hmm.
1: but um but yeah but i i think i was lucky that i had a supportive community kind of built in mm-hmm. in my upbringing and definitely helped to propel me to achieve and accomplish all the things that i have
0: mm-hmm. what do you um what do you miss about living in the south
1: i go back and forth i used to tell people it was the food and my family (laughs) Um, and then the weather, but only sometimes because um, New Orleans summers may be worse than Boston winters. Like it's, it's hard to tell, you know, like it's, you can't really do anything outside in July in New Orleans, unless you want to melt. And
0: uh, (laughs) I have a friend who lives down there now and he's, he's whiter than I am. And uh, he, (laughs) he, Oh my god! I don't even know how he did this, but the first three years, I think he lived there. He did construction outside. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was like, I was like, "You're gonna melt! You're gonna fry!" Like, I hope you yeah. were in sunscreen, like, and like a hat. And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, no, we we work early and we take breaks and we drink a lot of water." And I was like, "Dude, I'm like, you're gonna just fry! Like, you are not built for that! Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe you're doing construction outside! It's crazy!" It's
1: a uh- it's like, as as much as I say I miss it, and I don't mind, if I know I'm going to be hot and sweaty, I can do it, but I, I think back to all the times in the summer, almost everyone in New Orleans has been burnt on their own car. You know, if you have leather seats and you get in with shorts, you got to be careful that you don't burn your legs. And touching the steering wheel and arms on the armrest, I mean, like... Everything gets so hot. Like you usually get in the car and you're afraid to touch anything because you just don't want to get burned. But, but yeah, but people adjust no matter where they are. But, um, but yeah, but I definitely miss the food. I miss um, some of my favorite dishes oh, uh, gumbo, fried shrimp, po' boys, uh, jambalaya, um, sweet potato pie. Yeah. And like fried chicken although you can get fried chicken everywhere and i always say this like people would always ask me when they go to visit you know where should i go and i'm like uh grandma's you know because like we didn't really go out out a lot um my grandmother was a great cook my aunt was a great cook and um yeah like, like some things that are even like I don't know if I liked them as much when I was younger, but now I miss them. So um, lima beans and collard greens and some of the other things that my grandmother made, like now I'm like, Oh yeah, I can, I don't know. It reminds me of my youth. And so I didn't like them as much then, but now, yeah, I miss those foods. They always talk about food is making me hungry.
0: I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So coming from such a great food city, how have, you know, knowing that you're, you know, how to, a background as an athlete, and now you give them personal training and physical therapy, and you're a coach. How do you? How did you decide, food wise, how you were gonna change your diet, or what kind of things are you trying to do for yourself that you see as self care coming from that?
1: Like anyone who's ever read any diet book or ever had any goal that was connected to their nutrition. It's been such an evolution back and forth. Um, And for me, it was actually, this was fascinating. So I in college was a sprinter, sprinter and a long jumper. That was like my two favorite sports or um, events. I did triple jump for a little bit too. Um, And so I remember freshman year, we get out and we start um, our first practice and coach wanted us all to run one mile to see how fast we could run a mile. And so all the sprinters grouped together. We started off together and ran our mile. I ran a seven, a low seven minute mile. I forget exactly what it was, 707 or something like that, which sounds fast. But all the other sprinters ran in the fives and they lapped me. And uh, I remember my coach pulled me aside and he said, he's like, Charles, you're looking a little chunky. Maybe if you lost a few pounds, you'd be able to keep up. And I turned to him and I said, coach, I'm built like a tank. I'm big and powerful, but I don't get good gas mileage. And it was just so funny. He smiled at me, smacked me on the button. And then, you know, I went off to the rest of the practice. But it was this thought in my mind, even though I was like, probably like 160 and just like, or 155 and ripped and just like, an, I was an athlete, but I was just a bigger athlete than some of my, my teammates. And so I started thinking, hmm, well, maybe I do need to change the way I eat so that I could be a more effective athlete. So that was kind of the first kind of thought that popped in my head. So I remember after Coach said that to me, I tried to become a vegetarian. Didn't know anything about it. And here I am, I'm a 19-year-old kid. So I started trying to eat salads at, you know, all my meals. And I was so freaking hungry after like two days. I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't be a vegetarian. I'm so hungry. And, um, and so, you know... Nutrition, of course, was in my mind at that point. And then, of course, in, in the course of PT school, we had a nutrition class. And so I took nutrition. And then I think it was probably junior year when I read my first, like, diet book, as you would would call it, and really started to connect after having had that physiology base and that nutrition base to, oh, you know, I can see how changing how I eat could really make a difference on a lot of things. And so, um, again, I think my first foray into trying to change my nutrition was an interest to be a really a great athlete. Um, and then, of course, you start noticing the health benefits and then after your post athletic career, you realize, well, you know, I don't need to eat a certain way to fuel my athletics, but it's good for my health and um, and your patterns change and your habits change and your values change and so so now i I consider myself like there was a time when I feel like I was really strict and trying to be like really good about my nutrition. And then you go back home and your mom gives you candy and fried chicken. And, uh, it's funny because I, uh, I actually did a little bit of natural bodybuilding back in the day, which is an interesting sport. It really does. Um, it can, yeah, it can test you. It can reveal some things to you. And, um, when I would go home, my mom would ask, are you on a special diet? And if I said, no, she would take me to Popeyes, <laughs> and if I said yes, yeah, she would take me to Subway. And so it was like she always was trying to make sure that she gave me something that was a little bit more in line with what I was going for. But um, but as I've gotten older, I've kind of um realized that it's okay to eat just about everything, you know, and and that there is a place for moderation. And so when I go home, I will go to Popeyes. And uh, and if someone has sweet potato pie, I'll be sweet potato pie. So it's uh, so I've evolved, but um, but it it started from that initial kind of thought: how could I be a good athlete, and could I eat in a way that really, really, really helped me to excel at sports?
0: Mm-hmm. So how did you find your way to coaching? I think you've told me this before, but I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, I was always fascinated with psychology. Like, I I remember my Psych 101 professor, I remember that class, and I thought, oh, I want a minor in psychology. But I just didn't have enough time to do it. And when I started off my career in the clinic, uh, I was working both as a physical therapist and a personal trainer. And I was fascinated by how the mindsets of people were different in the settings. And... As an example, if someone came to me with back pain in the clinic, more often their mindset was, Charles, my back hurts. Can you rub it? Can you make it feel better? When I was in the gym, someone would come to me with back pain and they'd say, Charles, I have back pain, but I have a weak core. I don't stretch. My posture sucks. What do I have to do? And again, it's, it's a generalization about how people approach these two things, but I thought, ooh, you know, this proactive kind of what can I do mindset was sometimes more enjoyable to work with than the reactive, I have this problem and now you take care of me. And so I thought a lot about how even if I knew um, what was good for somebody in the clinic, if I couldn't get them motivated to take action, that the knowledge wouldn't be as useful. Yeah. So it it, it kind of started me down this path of motivation and psychology and how do you help people get motivated? How do you get them to follow through? And I had a lot of experience with self-help books, because that was just the way I treated my own self. You know, hey, you read a book, you go for it, you be self-determined, you try to reach your goals. And so my thought about coaching was that maybe coaches do the same thing they have this knowledge and they get people motivated and they talk from their own experience but i remember i had a friend who was a life coach through coach you and at the time their certification was like five grand and i'm like i just spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on my degree i'm like i got all this student loan debt i'm like i don't want to spend all this money on a certification and so that for a while, just, you know, discouraged me from becoming a coach. And then sometime down the road, probably another 10 or so years into my career, I started hearing about health and wellness coaching and how I was evolving. And I didn't want to do it for the sake of becoming a coach and trying to get my own private clients. But I thought that if I could be connected to a company and kind of have a built-in um, clientele to work with, that that, would be something I would be interested in. So I really felt lucky when I found the position that I, that I got hired in where I could just, you know, offer my services and just use my knowledge and my skills and my passion to just try to help people. Mm-hmm. And it really, for me, it's a win-win because I don't have to worry about the business aspect of it. I can just simply kind of serve and help people. And, mm-hmm. um, and I really do feel that that's, it's an area where most, Helping professionals need to get better. So when we think about doctors, therapists, nurses, dietitians, we know a lot about what people should do. But if we can't help them to actually use the information in a way that serves them, then the information isn't as valuable. So now I look at a lot of situations and not as much from a physiology perspective, but more from that psychology perspective.
0: Yeah. I've had a bunch of folks on, um, who were coaches and everybody across the board was always passionate about helping people, but they saw coaching as, 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 um, sometimes simply in the way that they like, they see themselves as a coach and others saw the coach training as a way to broaden the approach of what they do. Mm -hmm. So I've had about half and half like folks who went through coach training and are, and our functioning working coaches and that's sort of like how they introduce themselves. That's their world. And then the other half have coach training, but like I, fa- I fall into that category. I don't call myself a coach because mm-hmm. um, I don't coach full time. I coach maybe about a quarter of the time, but I think that the coach training is, um, sort of fit intuitively with how I approach the world anyways. Yeah. So it gave me like psychological tools and, and language and um, helped kind of define my thinking around things and how I approach people. Um, and, and also helped me identify what my, my real strengths were.
1: For sure. No, I think, I think that, that probably sums me up as well. Like I definitely resonated with how the information through coach training could personally help me. And, you know, all it takes is one thing. I think it was lesson two on positive psychology and like the core training that I went through. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait, that, that's the thing, <laughs> you know, because I had always considered myself an optimist and I always tried to work it into how I engaged in the world and work with people. And I'm like, wait, they're actually studying this and um, so I, I read a ton of books written by positive psychologists after that one lesson because I felt like it really it resonated with my own philosophy and, yeah. and helped to be instructive in some ways personally and professionally.
0: Do you um do you have someone that you coach regularly, like that you get coached by?
1: Right now I'm not getting coached by anyone regularly, but it's something that's in my near future. Um partly I'm doing another coach training now that I think I talked to and part of it is mentor coaching is one of the the, um, the things that I'll have to do so I'm gonna be working with a coach um, very soon but um, but in my work what I'll say is that and, and this is one of the interesting things, just about coaching in general you mentioned the concept of language and people use words to mean so many different things and how do I say it? I, I don't know that many people that are operate purely in a coach role. Um, and so, as an example, I think about myself sometimes as a consultant, a uh, wellness consultant, which is a little different from a coach. Um, sometimes I think about myself as a PT or a PT consultant. Sometimes I think of myself as a personal trainer or a personal training consultant. You know, so it's, it can get mixed up you know and and so who knows what the right terminology is yeah. you know and of course when you work with someone you just have to listen and talk to them so that you're on the same page of what their expectations yeah. are and you know you level set so that you know they know what you can and can't do for them but um
0: and you're such an educator that like and you're so good at that part that i would I see that also as part of your role and that, or how maybe how you define yourself because like one of the things I really remember from coach training is like coach is different than teacher or different than advisor. It's, they can come together, but that you should always kind of in your coach role, remember when you're doing education or ask for permission to do that and, and ask for permission to coach or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm with her.
0: Go ahead.
1: No, go ahead, yeah.
0: Sometimes I felt like those two things could potentially be at odds.
1: Yeah. I I think that it's something that intuitively I struggled with from the beginning of the first coach training that I did where um they would, you know, there was a big emphasis on not being an expert and I understand why there was an emphasis on that. But when you spent your whole career training to be an expert, like someone telling you to to forego your identity doesn't make the most sense. Right. And people who are seeking you out are seeking you out for your identity. Right. And so it always made more sense to me to blend and to switch hats. Right. Um, I actually I came across I when I went to the the huge conference in Boston uh, healthcare, uh, coaching in healthcare. Coaching and Leadership in Healthcare, that, yeah. that conference. Yeah. And there was a session on group coaching. And so I thought, oh, yeah, I, you know, I often have groups and maybe they're going to give me some tips. And what this, this consulting firm said is that there are four modalities that they tell their clients they can help them with, consulting, facilitating, teaching, and coaching, And that totally resonated with me because that's how people approach you. So from a consulting perspective, someone comes in and they say, okay, Charles, my elbow's been hurting since I started working from home. What do you think that is? And I can put on my PT hat and say, okay, how's your um, setup? Are you working at a proper desk? Are you working on a coffee table? I use my brain. Well, based on what you're telling me, I think it might be useful for you to get a proper desk with a keyboard tray. Um, it may make sense to do these stretches and to do these things. Voila. You know, they tell me what they do. I give them an opinion and that's it. Yeah. Um, or someone comes and they need to be, they they really do need to be taught something, you know? And so even if I take this same hat and they say, Oh, Charles, um, I don't know how to set up my ergonomics. Can you show me? I mean, like you can't coach someone uh, like you have to tell them if they don't know how to set up their ergonomic, you got to teach them. And so sometimes you play the role of these are the most ideal ways to set up your your setting. Um, The facilitation role, I think more about like a personal trainer as an example. To me, a personal trainer facilitates a workout. They may not be consulting. I mean, yeah, there is some consulting where they find out what your goals are. And, but um, but that, that's an element of um, let's just facilitate the workout. Get me through the workout. Um, and then the coach, which is the, the thing that's hardest to define, um, is, in my opinion, a lot of the coach role is really a lot about listening, asking questions. Reflecting, trying to help the person to figure out what's in their heart, what's in their head, what's in their mind, mm-hmm. and help them crystallize it in a way that juices them up and helps them want to act on it.
2: Right.
1: And so, um, so yeah, so it's and all those things can happen like in a in a session. Um, and so, but but to me as a per, as a helping professional, it feels that I might de- deploy any one of those kind of strategies to help someone yeah.
0: when you reflect on the coaching kind of industry that we work in what do you think about the diversity of coaches as well as the diversity of clientele
1: you know that's i had this conversation with someone recently and coaching is still fairly new and so i think that it's going to evolve a lot so you got a couple of things. You've got one area of coaching, which if people are working with private clients, then their private clients have to be pretty well off. I mean, because if you're charging anywhere from 50 to $200 per session or whatever the packages are. And so in that, in some respects, a coach clientele would be ref- um, reflective of a personal training clientele or someone who had a private dietitian. So again, someone who can afford to spend a lot of that money. But uh, in my situation, I feel fortunate that in the company that I work for, the coaching is paid for by the company, like they hired me. And so I, I actually liked it because I started to now, instead of working with, you know, like uh, an exclusive personal training clientele, I started working with people who are struggling and maybe didn't have the same resources. And and so it, it made me feel like, I don't want to say that my work was more meaningful, but in, in some ways I, I do sometimes feel that, yeah, being able to connect with people who might not have access to my knowledge and my skill set um, is something that I'm proud of. And I'm proud that the company's kind of invested in, in that opportunity for, for their employees.
0: Don't you think, too, that that makes us better coaches when we have experiences with people who we wouldn't necessarily normally would, or when we have people who have different life circumstances or different backgrounds, or people of color. Like, I think that just broaden as human beings. That broadens our experiences. Like, how can that not help us? in as coaches, and how can that not help the co- coaching industry be better?
1: Absolutely. Um, of course. Like, as a health professional, I'm like a really big-hearted person, and I know most coaches are big-hearted too. I used to always say to everyone, like, I wish everyone could do some type of service project because it just changes you when you do a service project. Mm-mm. And what I've noticed, and I, I, I've had this conversation with coaches as well. Um, much of the literature that's written is written for an elite, educated, well-off clientele. Absolutely. And I just wonder if the solutions are relevant to people who aren't in that position. And of course, you can only speak, how do I say it? So if you're an educated, well-off person and you start to advise people from your perspective, then it will be good for people who are similar to you, yeah. but it might not be as good. So as an example, I think about this all the time. Um, celebrities are responsible for a lot of our popular advice absolutely and it it makes sense they've been successful and we want to look up to them but often i have to try to help people to realize that their context is so different that we have to take that uh into account so um if someone if some celebrity says i work out six days a week and i do this and i eat this way and i eat that way it's like okay but how much does all that cost? And how much time does all that take? And it may be good, but if someone is not in that situation and can't apply that solution, then the person may feel like crap that they can't apply the solution or they'll keep trying to apply a solution that just doesn't fit. And so um, so I have nothing against, of course, celebrities advising, and sometimes they give excellent advice. But I think it's important for people to realize that You have to really look at your own life context to come with the best plan. And that's actually one of the, I think, the benefits of coaching is it's not simply giving advice. It's really like, hey, let's look at your context. You know, where are you at? How are you thinking? What resources do you have? How much time do you have? How much desire do you have? And then let's make the plan based on you. Let's not just top down and just say you should do something let's let's really kind of dig in and investigate where you're at and what's going on in your world
0: has anyone ever approached you about like to talk about diversity in coaching and like what your thoughts on how to make it more diverse
1: recently I've had a conversation a, a conversation with um with some leadership uh, in coaching certifications because you know it's not something that I think they've talked about. And of course, like in this opportunity or this moment of, you know, kind of social justice, it's something that I think more people are thinking about. And um, it's, it's a question I've thought about in a lot of industries And, and who knows what the How do I say Actually, I'll I'll use a coaching phrase. Of course, in coaching, we talk about mindfulness and just observing and not necessarily labeling something as a problem. (laughs) And so so if I, from an observation perspective, when I was in physical therapy school, I was the only African-American male in my class. There were three African-American women, um, but in Um, the class... Uh, about 150, 150 people. Wow. So, yeah, so it was, it was, I mean, and we were probably 80 plus percent women. So, yeah, so it weren't that many guys to begin with. So that's, of course, one factor is that if it's the women industry then there won't be a lot of african-american males just because there aren't a lot of guys period right but um there weren't any african-american men in the five classes ahead of me or the five classes behind me so that Uh for like a 10-year period about i was the only one um but
0: how did that make you feel
1: you know i honestly i don't it never really well how did it make me feel? Yeah.
0: Maybe this is a better question. How did that affect you? How did it impact you?
1: Some people might have considered me to be blissfully naive, but in retrospect, I don't know if it was blissful naivety or just a choice to focus on different things. And I'll say this. I had an amazing experience in college. Um, I felt respected. I felt heard. I felt supported. I felt people looked up to me. if anything, it was something that made me unique. And because I felt I had a lot to bring, my uniqueness was even more on display. I don't know, and this is just a guess, I don't know if people ever said, oh, the Black guy, but my guess is if people characterize me that way, it was a fond characterization. And so, again, that's just my guess, because I just, I felt I felt loved and respected and people knew me and people called on me for a lot of things. No one ever referred to me that way. Um, But but again, I know that I stood out just visually. I stood out. And then in my deeds, I know I stood out. And so um, could I have could could that have put me in better positions because I stood out? Maybe. But I, I feel like a lot of the reason why I stood out was because of my deeds. You know what I mean? So, so yeah. So I never, I never once thought about. Oh, I'm the only African American male. Like it just, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, and part of it might have been when I was in high school in New Orleans. I actually went to a Catholic high school, private high school, where you have to pay tuition. And in my class of about 140, there were only four African American men. So I mean, like, so it, you know, it wasn't, and yeah, it wasn't really a new experience to be one of few and in high school I was the only African American male in my class that was in the honors classes. So I mean it was so yeah, so, so being the only black guy in a class really I, I I never really thought about it. Never yeah. It it just was something that happened, but I don't really feel like it influenced me in any in any way that like I really remembered. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. So you were used to looking around and not necessarily seeing people of your experience but that wasn't something that necessarily concerned you or bothered you or in, in some ways it sounds like you kind of celebrated it because you were standing out as well as your deeds and your acts and your achievements.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, there's something that actually I'll, I'll mention this to you because I wrote it down and I was thinking about it. Like I try to, um, look at people as people. And, and like, that's it. Like, that's my, that's my judgment is that it's a person. And like, that's, and so I feel like I'm pretty open with how I act to people. And I actually had this conversation with a lot of my African-American or minority friends. And it was the right, the realization that it's hard to separate a human experience from an identity experience. Um, and I think about one of the books that, did, did you read Learn Optimism? Yeah. From, okay. So, Martin Seligman wrote a book, yeah. Learned Optimism. And, of course, he talked about explanatory style. Um, and so, optimists explain the world's events one way. Pessimists explain it in another way. Mm-hmm. I always felt I was an optimist. And so, I... My explanatory style of things was just different. Um, so one thing that I believe I hold in my heart is that people are fallible. They make mistakes all the time. Yeah. So my expectation is that people are going to make mistakes. So that I, that's just, I, I don't know, it's just wired in me. So I'm not saying that I don't get upset, but when people make mistakes, I already assume that they're going to make mistakes. And so I treat them probably a little bit more reflexively with kindness and forgiveness because that's part of being a human. It's not, what's wrong with you? Well, you're human, you make mistakes. Um, and when I talk about personally how I try to not internalize my identity, because it's so easy to internalize that we're getting treated a certain way because of something around our identity. So as an example, um, if someone doesn't hold the door for me, I think, oh, that person's an a-hole, they didn't hold the door for me versus that person didn't hold the door for me because I'm black. (laughs) Or that person didn't hold the door for me because I don't look a certain way. And that's just how kind of how I rolled through my life. And so maybe there were identity experiences that I had Mm -hmm. that I just chalked off to that's just a human experience. And so it didn't affect me as negatively because I didn't internalize it as ooh, this is personal against me Mm -hmm. versus this is what people do and I just move on. And, you know, and so, um, so yeah, so that's something that I, I I remember kind of talking about that in college Mm -hmm. and I think it's just still part of my philosophy that I carry through with me. Um, and, um, yeah. And so, and I, and I don't, and I wonder if as a coach, sometimes helping people to make that distinction, because I think a lot of people get really hurt and upset, because of something, when they feel their identity is being attacked. You know, I'm being treated unfairly because I'm a woman. I'm being treated unfairly because I'm overweight. I'm being treated unfairly because I'm an immigrant. And some of that may be true. You know, I, I, you know, I want to honor that discrimination and craziness happens, but um, people are not perfect and they make mistakes and they do stupid stuff and bad stuff because they're people. And, you know, and again, so personally, I feel like that's kind of the lens that I kind of like approach the world, and so, as a result, I see a lot less personal attacks, and um, and it's given me some comfort. But um, but yeah, but I, I'm I'm sensitive to the real pain that people feel, yeah. and um, and and yeah, and it and it definitely does exist that people do get treated sometimes negatively just because of something in their identity.
0: Yeah, that's a nice distinction the way you made that. I really appreciate that you said that. I think one of the things that has been is something that I inherently knew, but it's something that has even more prevalent for me these days, especially um, given, you know, current circumstances and it's not lost on me that today's George Boyd's funeral um, is the idea that we all coming from different experiences and um, backgrounds And um, people of color are allowed, like everybody else, to have a range of experiences. There's no one monolithic idea of thinking around something. Mm -hmm. And so in my asking you these questions, I appreciate that I'm talking to you, Charles, not you, Charles, person of color, coach, who has to monolithically explain the experience that I'm you know that we're talking about in the same way that you wouldn't expect me white girl Felicia (laughs) um, to have you know the whole the whole white female experience Um, because we have so many more prisms within inside of us and um, I'm a writer I'm a podcaster I have an Irish upbringing, but for me, I was a nerd, I was a science geek, I was someone who felt like the outsider my whole life, and so if there was anybody different, and that included sometimes people of color in my community, like I can remember the four, four black kids I went to school with mm-hmm. in junior high, it was Felicia and Phaedra, which I was so excited to meet another Felicia, that it didn't even occur to me at the time that she was a different color than me. But I was just like, she's the same name as me.
1: <laughs> yep.
0: um, but I remember, I still remember their names, Felicia and Phaedra. Cool. Um, and both had P.H.'s. But I do remember being, like, I'll take stock in things like... Um, in college, right after college, I, and I went to a very predominantly white college, and I, I hated how undiverse it was, and monolithic it was, and, and I didn't feel like any of those people, so if there was somebody different on campus, I was with them, Mm. (laughs) was theater, or arts, or people of color, or someone in a different background, someone geographically, it was different from northeast, that was, those are the people that I wanted to know. And yeah. that was more about feeling, like, feeling different and being an outsider than it was. Um, and it was also the idea of rejecting the status quo. So I think that's been in me since I was very young is rejecting the status quo. So when I got into coaching, I remember the last coaching conference that we went to that you and I have been to before I think I went to the last one two or three years ago, and I do remember looking around the room in the big, you know, one of the welcome speeches, Hmm. and I think I counted 25 people of color, and none of the the presenters—almost all the presenters were men, and none of the artists or or presenters were people of color. And I just thought, what are we doing? Come on
1: yeah it's um it it's such a again i'll, I'll go philosophical um, whenever we think about the population uh, and i'll use this weird word what's well, not a weird word <laughs> i'll call it social engineering <laughs> because you know we still have this experiment with society where you know we're trying to engineer and of course you know we're trying to engineer it in a way that is just that is um safe that is inclusive that is you know living up to our highest ideals and values and um and it's it's always hard to know um it's hard to know exactly what any representation what the result is so a couple thoughts um coaching as we mentioned is a new kind of profession and so it makes sense that if more of the wealth and education is concentrated in one community, that that community would go to that profession first. Um, And that over time, it it might, you know, get into um, communities where there's not as much exposure. And so, um, and yeah, and so I I think, so I think that that's like just one thing that kind of pops into my mind about it. Um, People have all kinds of interests. I, I think about um, in my family, you know, I th- most of my f- cousins and friends knew that I wanted to be a physical therapist, but not a lot of them like, oh yeah, that's what I want to do too. Like they had other interests. <laughs> like, I don't know exactly why they had other interests, but like they just, they weren't pumped up about it. But but with with anything, obviously, when you get exposed to people who look like you, and or that you resonate with, then um, it increases the chances that you do anything. And so um, yeah. so yes. if, and, and it's something that, how do I say it, like it's, because I think, I remember once my dean at BU asked me that question. He's like, oh, what do you think we can do to interest more young African-American men to get into physical therapy? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, like, you know, it was just, that was my thing. Um, But um, so, yeah, so I think for, for people who are leading industries, recruiting, training, developing professionals um, in order for the demographic to change, I think they would have to be some type of concerted effort among those people to reach out and try to include. So like without that, there's probably a little chance. And then even with that, you still have the issue of, well, you got to convince people yeah. <laughs> who may have other interests to... to um...
0: It's tough too because the conference is amazing information-wise. It really and sure. an a really amazing opportunity to meet coaches from all kind of different areas of the country. But because it's Harvard Associated, it really is about the alphabet after your name. So it's about the letters after your name and are you an md are you a dph are you what is it in and that that so it is like you're saying it's credentials and with those credentials there's a lot of money tied behind that yeah you you, you know nobody nobody who has an md or an ma or a dph has you know you have a huge student debt and you've paid heavily for those credentials and you've earned them, and that's great, but um that that's also excluding a huge portion of the population that might have an interest in this in this field that uh, doesn't have access to that that money yeah. and those that funding and those that education sources and I remember uh when I went through the well coaches program i had already I already had a certification in personal coaching, I had a master's degree and I'd been working in healthcare for 10 years, and I had to convince them that my background was worthy to Mm -hmm. to coach training. And I'm like, I'm paying you for a certification. Like, I have a bachelor's degree in human development. I have a master's degree in communications. Mm -hmm. I've been working as a coach for five years. Like, I have to convince you that I'm worthy of well-coaches training. Like, I just remember... Like so, and if that was those were the stumbling box blocks for my background, then there's a lot of other hurdles that some other folks who don't have that type of background and education or even sense of advocacy for themselves, th- those are roadblocks. Those yeah. are walls
1: that Yeah.
0: people are gonna climb over.
1: Yeah, and I I think it's like that in the I mean in a we could look at it in a lot of industries and see that. Yeah, um, there's there's lots of challenges for people, for sure, for sure. I mean, I who knows? It's one of the, one of the things that's oh, again for me, I always think, you know, have I inspired? I don't know if I've inspired any young, you know, African American men to pursue physical therapy because they say, hey, well, that guy, he you know, he got his degree, um, and but I will say, I hope that as my work as a coach evolves that I do inspire some people of color to get into coaching. I it's, it's something that's on my mind. Um, and so, and who knows, I mean, I, it may just be me putting myself out there and speaking to people and over time, and maybe some people have already seen me and thought, Oh yeah, you know, I, that, that makes a lot of sense that resonates with me. So, um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm aware that it's, that the demographics are what they are. Um, not that there aren't great coaches, though, because, you know, it, you can get help from from just about anybody if they're passionate enough and knowledgeable enough and care enough. So,
0: One of the things that I've done is I've had coaching from a lot of different types of coaches. So I've, met, I've had, uh, I've tried, I've coached with friends. I've, I've mentor coached. Meaning, I've received that coaching. Yeah. Whenever yeah. we go to a an alliance meeting and we have coaching opportunities, I love being the client. I I think that's a fantastic experience. I've yeah. With yeah. Folks who have been executive coaches, I've coached with career coaches. I coached with um, someone who does astrological coaching.
1: Never heard of that. <laughs> so they
0: they use astrology and like they do a whole chart for you and then they talk to you about, it's sort of like um, almost like talking about archetypes. So okay. based on your birth sign and all of these, like your moon rising and the sun setting or whatever, you have certain archetypes.
2: Okay. Yeah. And
0: so it was, it was so interesting. I coached with someone else who believes in um, the, the work by Byron Katie Um, I
1: don't know. I don't know that author either.
0: I really hate that. I hate it. Um, But I found that experience really interesting. Um, I've coached with someone who uh, had like a nature background. So they believed like everything, uh, all all things natural, basically. I I've coached with someone who believed in narrative coaching, which is narrative storytelling.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so it's a lot around like writing your story and then how is your story currently how would you like your story to be and so they use a lot of writing techniques and tips for um, helping you feel empowered around those things
1: mm. yeah Not. that's It is is neat. And like you said, when you think about it, there's so many different approaches. Um, That's one of the things that I like about coaching that, yeah, you can really, there's lots of different ways to help serve people. (laughs) And it
0: sounds like you're a voracious reader. What are you reading these days?
1: Well, I, uh, I, I love learning, and I always make that distinction because I'm slow at reading. But if I can get audiobooks or Audible, oh, man, I'm golden. I just love that. Um, I, I actually credit my growth as a coach to my library because, you know, literally, you know, you can, I was getting 25 to 40 books a, a, you know, a year. And um, I'm reading this book now that has me fascinated. Um, it's called How Emotions Are Made. Yeah, by Lisa or Lisa Gelman Barrett. She's actually a professor at Northeastern, so she's a a local professor and she basically says that there's kind of two views of how emotions are made. One is the classic view in which our brain receives some stimulus from the outside world and then creates some emotion based on the stimulus Uh and her argument is that when they look at for emotion footprints and that in the science, like when they really do brain studies, that they can't find any replicable data. (laughs) And so her theory is the theory of constructed emotion. And, um, and I'm finding this to be challenging and interesting because it just goes against what I've heard about emotions. And, uh, and I'm trying to figure out how to, take all her information and then be able to use it to help clients, hopefully. Um, so, yeah, to, to be a little healthier and happier. So, yes, yeah, so I'm still going through it.
0: Are you strictly a nonfiction guy or do you like other things?
1: Yeah, pretty much mostly nonfiction. Um, usually in the psychology, health, business, economics, um, I do like history. Um, And so sometimes I will delve into history. One of my traditions, I tend to like during February and Black History Month, I always try to read something, uh, you know, about some famous African-American. So every now and then I may get a fiction book by an African-American author. If I'm in that mode of let me just kind of get into into that work. And so
0: I've been very into poetry recently, too. So I've been writing a lot more poetry and reading a lot more poetry. Okay. Um,
1: what do you tend to write about?
0: Um, I always write from my own perspective, and but I've written a bunch. My mom has dementia, so I've written a bunch about that. And mm. um, I have a, a a monthly or every other month, I'm published in an online um, poetry corner called Kind Over Matter.
2: Okay, so it's
0: um some self help stuff, but a lot of like the whole. Um, ideal of the woman who puts the stuff out is about kindness hmm. so sometimes the poetry is um, observational sometimes it uh, The most recent poem that I've written about was um, sort of the reflection of um, I've been doing a lot of puzzles during the pandemic um, I love crosswords but I've been actually gotten back to doing actual physical puzzles
2: cool yeah. um,
0: And I find that meditative, but I also realize, uh, I was listening to a show on NPR and the the interviewer and the woman they were interviewing were both from Detroit and they were talking about um, having lost so many people in their community, especially there was a young girl that had died from COVID. And um, I just thought that we were losing pieces of our puzzles our
2: fabric Uh.
0: our pictures are degrading because of all the the loved ones that we're losing from covid
1: if you're listening right now you're online with all of us join me host guillermo samuel hamlin as we delve into the majestic oddity that is cyberspace while releasing new tracks along with lo-fi and experimental hip-hop tune in to the guaucast on boston free radio
0: with being isolated?
1: I, uh, I'm i in a, a little bit better rhythm now. Good. Um, one thing I, I know I've, I've said to you and I've said to a lot of people is I think about so much. I think about emotions a lot from the perspective of stages of grief. <laughs> Cause like literally that's what happens is like, at first you're like, Oh my goodness, this is not happening. You deny. And then you get sad, mad, whatever, angry, depressed. And, uh, and it just makes sense when you lose something even like we usually think about it when it comes to just losing a loved one but if you lose a job if you lose money if you lose you know anything that was part of your life you know the gym <laughs> you know you're gonna grieve it and uh and so so like a lot of people I think in the beginning I was like oh man you know like you just kind of the first little bit you're on adrenaline you're just making it work and then you're like what the heck going on but the nice weather has been a godsend. And so uh, since the weather kind of turned, I feel like it's helped to keep my mood elevated. And so, yeah, so it hasn't been, it has, it's been, yeah, it's been a little bit better. I know like one of my kind of things that I've been like trying to do is after work every day, put on my sneakers, grab the phone, go for a walk and call somebody. And so uh, it's a nice way to get some steps and talk to somebody and connect and so (laughs) so that's been my new one day I actually called my dad and um he didn't pick up so I called someone else and then when he called me he was like I told miss diane that you were probably walking (laughs) because he knows that like when I need someone to talk to him I walk I'll call him and so and then I think he and I talked for like an hour and a half so I got like a good five mile walk in (laughs)
0: yeah how have your friends and family been dealing or thinking about things that have been happening
1: in the news? You know, it's, it's all over the place. I mean, I think, well, I shouldn't say it's all over the place. Most people feel kind of the same way as you would expect, you know, being sad, upset, frustrated, happy, uh, not happy about the the outpouring of support um, and hopeful that maybe, um, you know, things will change. And so, so yeah, so I think Yeah, and that's probably kind of where I've landed, too. I mean, initially, like, super sad, of course. And then the sadness gives way to frustration. But then, you know, realizing that I still can do something, then, you know, you start getting hopeful, not only that other people are going to try to make a difference, but that you might, you know, be able to do a little something yourself. So
0: I remember I said this to a friend. um, She was... My colleague when I worked at tough Sales plan and um, she was the first one on Facebook that posted about Trayvon Martin and I remember reading what she'd posted and thinking that can't be true and um, her post was more about like it's happened again it's happening again yeah and she has young African-American daughter African-American son and um, it was so much about a mother's perspective that she was posting. And I remember my feeling being like, that can't be true. Mm. And, And I know that there's friends and colleagues now in my sphere who are like, who are kind of waking up to what, what's been happening. Yeah. It's, it is like, you know, it is tough to be confronted by the idea that, we haven't made any progress and yet we have, but that these things are still happening. And, um, and it must be frustrating for people. And I'm even on that side too now, like to people who are are now waking up to being like, how did you not know this? Like, and I'm even saying that to myself, like, how did we not, how did I not know this? Like it's, um, or even now people confronting ideas of what the police means, what their job is, what it should be. Yeah. These are all yeah. good questions.
1: For sure. For sure. And, you know, it's, again, I go back to my initial, something I said about people, like, I expect people to be fallible. Um, but one one quote that's been popping up a lot as, uh, I believe it's Maya Angelou, and it was something to the effect of, um, when you know better, do better. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so yeah, so, like, of course, I mean, uh, most people are just living their lives, doing their thing. And if you're living your life, you, you can only know what you're exposed to. And so if you weren't exposed to it, how could you know? But now that people are getting exposed to it, it's like, okay, now we know we got to do better. And so, um, yeah, yeah. It's um, And one of the things that's been so, like, obvious to me is... Even in the face of video evidence, police and other people have been denying the facts. And so I'm like, wait, if you're going to lie to us when we have evidence, then it just naturally makes you think that all alone they've been lying to us about things that have happened. Um, Like I even think of like, I mean, that already happened many times with this, with all these cases. But I'm thinking about the protester um, you probably saw in New York. In Buffalo, it was a 75-year-old white guy who kind of walked up to the police. And in their initial report, the police reported that the guy tripped. And then when you looked at the video, they, they pushed him. And it's like, wait, they're lying about something. Like, it's it's just, you know, and, and so it just, it, then if you think about the black community or, you know, it just, it does kind of make you think, yeah, this has been going on for a long time and it's just been under the rug or lied about.
0: I think the thing that really crystallized for me too with that Buffalo, the Buffalo police department was initially I had heard that the 57 other officers had resigned and I read it and it was the 57 other officers had resigned from that unit. In support of the two men who were charged, pushing the 75 year old man to the ground so hard that his head exploded. And then you're like, okay, well, you know, my outrage isn't just about that. My outrage is about the fact that this is a perfect example of what happens all around the country when people are shot in their homes or cars or held down to the point where they're killed or, so this is, this is exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> this is the, the two guys who got too physical and then the 57 others who said, oh yeah, everything they did was right. We're yeah. gonna resign because we're with them so then so then you're all bad you're all wrong
1: yeah it's there's so many it, yeah and it's, it's such a weird thing like i said i i remember writing to friends about this before about um what's the word um i'm trying to be politically <laughs> uh correct it's um how to well i'll just use i'll use this analogy it's all about about team team and family We are psychologically wired to be preferential in our treatment to people who are on our team or in our family. And it's a bias that I know I have in me. And and I've said this to people because sometimes you end up supporting negative behavior not because you think the negative behavior is wrong or right, but because the person's on your team. And uh, one of the analogies when I wrote about this, it was um, uh, uh, Dennis Rodman. So Dennis Rodman played for the Detroit Pistons. Yeah, they were the bad boys. Well, growing up in Louisiana, um, we didn't have an NBA team. And like a lot of people, I was a Michael Jordan fan. I just loved the Bulls because of Michael Jordan, which means that I hated the Detroit Pistons, You know, even though I did kind of like Isaiah Thomas at the time for the Pistons. And so, like, I hated because I felt Dennis Rodman was beating up Michael Jordan. I just hated him. I just, like, oh, I hate this guy, you know. Well, Dennis Rodman became a Chicago Bull. And all of a sudden, he was one of my favorite players. And so, it's like, wait. Like, I wasn't I, – I didn't like the antics when he was on the other team. But then when he was on my team, I forgave them. I'm like, well, yeah, he's a little bit out there. But now he's, he's, he's on my team now. And so – um It's just it's just something that I know is just natural about how we're wired. Um, And of course, we have to pay attention to it, because the truth is that just because Dennis Rodman's on my team, in quotes, doesn't mean that I, I should waive all accountability when he does something that is not right. And um, it's a hard thing to wrestle with, psychologically speaking. And I, I know I've even said this before. Like when I hear people, "Oh, they're lying, they're lying, they're lying," I'm thinking, I'm "Like if someone in my family was threatened, would I lie to protect them?" And you know, like my rational brain tells me I probably would lie, even though I know lying's wrong. <laughs> and so, like again, I, I, I'm not saying that any of these things is like defending people, but bad behavior is right. But it's just always interesting me to think about it from that psychology perspective that our morality changes based on what team we're on or what, yeah. And it's, I mean, we just have to be aware of it so that we can overcome it. Because, you know, if we're really, really, really being mindful, then hopefully we, we can be at the point to where we can say, you know what, nah, it doesn't matter. Um, wrong is wrong.
0: And the system is set up that way, too, to make to make it that that group-mindedness. So, so then that, that takes away the idea that it's serve and protect. Like, Absolutely. And that they are public servants. It, it's an us-against-them mentality. And whenever we have us-against-them, then we are looking for the problem. We are looking for the problem-maker. We are looking for the... Like like in that in the Buffalo example, because it had such good had such good video regardless of what the police orders were what that man was doing it was still 57 or however many 75 officers and one elderly gentleman on yeah. our elderly yeah. gentleman. i mean there were other protesters too but yeah. and whatever he said to them even if it was confrontational, yeah,
2: really yep. mm-hmm. they
0: were fully geared up and fully armed yeah So
2: it's
0: like, it's just that I, I've been, I personally have been examining my relationship and thoughts about the police and kind of remembering different encounters or exchanges. And I remember once I was called for jury duty and we have, have, I have law enforcement in my family And I genuinely believed this at the time. I think I was maybe 20 years old. Um, And I was, I went through the impaneling process. So you go and you sit in the jury, you sit in the witness box next to the judge and then the lawyer asks questions of you based upon what you've written in your jury survey. Mm -hmm. And uh, the lawyer said, do you believe that the the police officers would ever lie in court and I I was really confound like dumbfounded by that question and I said why would they Mm. and they dismissed me Mm. and and at the time I really like I really believed that and I'm (laughs) I think back now specifically like wow I was really naive
1: yeah i mean i think i probably would have had the same reaction you know like some years ago like i just you know who would wait why would they i mean like maybe i would have been a little tiny bit skeptical but for the most part asked in that setting i think i would have yeah i think i would have said the same thing
0: but i also remember um this was elementary school we had a an assembly and a police officer came and um no, well, I don't know if it was to introduce us to the police officer or the idea that, like, you know, if you skip school, it's bad. Or you create if you do a crime, it's bad or stealing is wrong or what purpose really the assembly was for. But I remember like the bad kid oh, This this elementary school. So this is mm-hmm. kindergarten through fifth grade.
2: OK, yeah. So
0: what kind of trouble were we making when we were that young? I remember the bad boy who was a friend of mine got called up to the front of the assembly, got put in handcuffs, and the police officer showed how he can twist your wrists and make you do what you want. And like, I remember kids laughing. And at the time, I remember looking at my friend's face and like, he was afraid. Like, that yeah. it hurt, whatever it was. So maybe, say, we were all in fifth grade. How old are you when you're in fifth grade? Ten years? Ten,
1: old. 11, yeah.
0: So we were at an assembly where a police officer thought it would be funny to put a ten-year-old in handcuffs and twist his wrists and show how he can make them dance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not my area of expertise, but I have found myself trying to read a little bit about the history of policing in the country and also about what some people are thinking about when it comes to like you mentioned rethinking our relationship. Yeah. yeah. Because I mean we ha- we have asked and and it's weird because like you think there's a common phrase, I know you've heard it, if uh if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> right. And so um we've we've What's... probably over invested in hammers in yeah. the country. And why we should have been invested in some other thing, like whatever, again, I'm not an expert on that, but, but it makes sense to me that um, if we had invested in other things that we would have a different expectation for the police, they'd have different roles and we have different outcomes, yeah.
0: Protect and serve rather than, you know, subdue and control. Yeah. Like what they do now is subdue yep. and control. Yep. And like... The idea that, well, it's only a few bad guys. Well, no, no, actually, it's the whole culture. And then the ones who are good have to rise above that.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. And that's, it's a weird thing that I've been hearing again. Like, it's, you know, I never want to say anything that offends anyone. But, like, the statistics to me just overwhelmingly show that there's, like, systemic racism. And yeah. so, like, sure, there may be only a few, like, extremely racist cops that take it to the you know level right. of brutalizing people but you know um like even when they looked at like stop and frisk in new york i mean it was like yes. it was like somewhere like of the 700,000 stops it was like 80% of them were black and brown it's right. like but 80% of the population isn't black and brown so like that's right. uh, that's a sign of systemic racism you right. know and they're not ending in death Right. But they're, they're still getting, you know, and then if you look at just the charges, you know, if uh, for equal charges, people who are brown and black serve longer time. So, like, how is that not systemic? I mean, like, that's that has nothing to do with law or justice. If you're one color and you average more time, that's so. So, yes, I, I know I've heard people saying that there's no systemic racism and that is a few bad apples, but. that just doesn't make any sense to me. And again, trying to use the limited data, that's not my area of expertise, but um, it's just, yeah, it's pretty obvious that there's a systemic challenge. And then on the fringes, we have people who are extremely racist who take it out in a violent way. Um, And so, so yeah, so I I can get with the 1% of people are so violent, (laughs) but it's still a systemic problem.
0: And it's, um, it's a culture of privilege too, because it's mostly white, and then we're giving you a gun and a weapon and power, and it gets abused.
1: Yeah, and yeah, it's we, we've. I feel like again, I'm hopeful. Uh, again, it's not my area of expertise, but I'm just hopeful from a little bit that I'd be able to kind of read and hear about where people's brains are around systemic racism around reform around just relationship and so um i feel like i feel like yeah i feel like it's a good time to have a conversation and and actually i mean like of course um if we think back to just overall well-being as just kind of a theme like it just makes sense that um if you can if the country comes together and starts addressing this issue that it will, it can transform the co- the country for good. It just really can. Yeah.
0: I think even the conversations have changed in a, in a way that I find very meaningful. Like people are talking about real things. Like it's good to take breaks from heavy, heavy subject matter, especially where we've been in a pandemic
2: Yeah. and,
0: and watch a, you know, a cat video or whatever, but, we can't live there all we can't live in fantasy land all the time and and the fact that i've had very deep and meaningful conversations with people recently even about challenging subjects um that's where growth happens you know that's where change happens
1: yeah so hopefully like i said that this will be a time where we do get some meaningful change and that that people really yeah have have the have the good long heart-to-heart conversations and a lot of self-reflection and, and we'll get some growth.
0: What thoughts do you have about where you see your, your podcast fitting in or what kind of things would you like to cover in a podcast?
1: I, um, you know, I go back and forth. I think like in this moment, of course, I think a lot about um, just being supportive of the community in general, but my initial thought in wanting to start a podcast was um, for me to try to just, I guess, take the, all the thoughts I've been thinking about, all the philosophizing I've been doing and try to just put it in a spot um, to make some positive difference. I, I think sometimes it can be simple concepts and simple ways to change the way people frame like their health and wellness goals that could be transformative and helpful for them. And so, um, so yeah, and, and I always say this too, like I, having had coach training, I see the benefit of talking to people like a coach and not necessarily just being an advice kind of thing, you know, even though like it's easy. I, I like giving advice. Most people who love a subject like, like love giving advice, but I feel like we have so many advice shows columns and everything else that I might come in and hopefully be able to to speak from a coach angle um there's a couple issues that like are really near and dear to my heart one I, well I'll say thinking holistically about any problem is something that is near and dear to my heart and I feel like too often when we approach health and wellness problems we want our reduction use reductionist logic and get to like a one thing and it may make people feel good, but it just doesn't always feel like the right thing to me. So like, so that's one thing that I, I think I'll always try to look at a problem holistically if I can and paint a picture for people. Um, two other things that kind of pop into my mind um, is being an exercise kind of professional, trying to help people to figure out how to incorporate movement in a way that is useful and helpful for them. And so whether it be trying to figure out how to get motivated to exercise or thinking differently about exercise and movement. And so that's something that I think a lot about. And um, the other thing that I think a lot about, which is how we talk about weight in health and wellness. Mm -hmm. It tends to frustrate me a lot, the way we talk about it, because I don't know if I don't think we talk about it in a way that is useful and supportive. Yep. And so so that's that's another area that i that I think that i I would probably delve into a little bit, you know
0: okay, so here I'll share with you a little bit about my stuff so i I used to be um almost three hundred pounds um I was not heavy growing up um i had i chose after some good counseling and process that uh, to have gastric bypass. So in 2007, I had gastric bypass and I lost 150 pounds. I had um, two subsequent surgeries after that related to gastric bypass. Um, One was I had an abdominal adhesion. The other one was I realized, and I didn't realize I had at the time, but I had a ruptured gastric ulcer. So Those two Mm -hmm. surgeries kind of set me back and I gained some of that weight back. Um, But in the coaching profession, I was never um, the thin uh, athletic uh, Mm -hmm. coaching model. So it was always kind of, I found kind of a struggle because I was someone who had personal stake and investment in weight loss because of my experience, but also I didn't look like the rest of the coaching community. I wasn't a weight, you know, bodybuilder. I wasn't a, uh, a physical, uh, like a personal trainer. I didn't come yeah. from it from that perspective. I came from it from a personal kind mm-hmm. in it. But I also, I don't look like other coaches because I'm yeah. more full figured, I'm rounder. I have someone who my weight has fluctuated. Um, So I had a lot of imposter syndrome.
1: Mm, Yep. Yep. I understand
0: that. Yeah. So, you know, if you were coaching that kind of a person, what would, what kind of things would you go at?
1: What I'll say is this overall theme that medicine and fitness have been hijacked by the beauty industry. And, and so it's just that's just one of my overall arching themes and so what I mean by that is now when we look at health we look at it often through a beauty lens and a vanity lens when we look at fitness we often look at it through a beauty lens and a vanity lens and it wasn't always like that that's something that's new like you know in the last generation or so um, I think about what well, babe Ruth pop just popped into my mind because For a long time, he was considered one of the greatest athletes ever, but he was, he ate hot dogs and smoked and and was heavy, you know, but people still call him a great athlete, you know, and then like all of a sudden, oh, now in order to be a great athlete, you have to look like a model. And so, again, I'm not saying that, you know, athletes should eat hot dogs and smoke all the time. Right. But um, but that, that was something that changed. And same thing, I think, from a health perspective, that, that um, we, we started judging people more harshly from a health perspective. And so it's something that's hard for people to untwine. So their, their vision of health is tied to some vision of how they look, and their vision of fitness is tied to something how they look. And I think it would be helpful for people to try to decouple those things. Yes. And, and again, it's hard because our society keeps smashing them together. But um but sometimes if you can kind of decouple them and um and so simple things like I always say in coaching, you know, you, you ask people questions and you give them the child look at, you know, um if they can find disconfirming evidence, <laughs> you know, then sometimes it helps them to start thinking differently about um about their how what story they're telling themselves. And so um so if someone is feeling imposter syndrome and I probably could even ask, ask you directly. I was trying to be general. <laughs> and so you say you were feeling imposter syndrome. And so, um, like, can you tell me a little bit more specifically about kind of what, like, how that was manifesting? And from, yeah, what perspective were you feeling imposter syndrome?
0: I think from a coach perspective. So, like, I don't have this all figured out. Or, you know, my, my journey's not complete or resolved in some way, or, you okay. know, I'm carrying more weight than I, you know, the should thing, then how can I coach someone else? Or I don't look like every other coach I've ever seen. I'm mm. not fit that way. How can I be recognized as a coaching professional if, if I haven't, if I don't have this all resolved?
1: Okay, yeah yep yeah, I totally get that and um and so, what I say is that despite all that, um have there been people that you've been able to help?
0: absolutely,
1: okay, mm-hmm. okay, and so the role of a coach is obviously to help people <laughs> and so and so i I think that would be the key is that if the if you feel like you've still been able to be effective in helping change people, then that gives you some evidence about your ability to help people yeah. while at the same time, you could still be on your own journey.
0: Right. I think the other visual that someone else lent me that I borrow all the time is I might be one or two rungs up the ladder from someone else and I'm just reaching my hand back. And then there might be other people who are a few rungs ahead of me. Mm -hmm. So like wherever I am in my journey is legitimate and informs me. It, but it doesn't mean that I can't help somebody else.
1: For sure. Or that someone
0: sure. else can't offer me some perspective or guidance.
1: If we extend the coaching analogy to sports, all the time the athletes can do more than the coaches. It's just, I mean, like Bill Belichick can't do what Tom Brady does he can't do what any of his players do, (laughs) you know, but he's still considered by everybody to be the best coach. And, and that, that always happens. And so, so again, so to me, when I think about effective coaches, it's not about uh, being able to do better than the people that you're coaching because in sports, every athlete can do better than their coach. It's just, that's just the reality. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's helpful. It, it's, I think it's something I'll always struggle with and it's, um, I love, I still love getting coached. I love, yes. it helps, yeah. it helps me get out of my own headspace. I mean, I also love counseling. I have a relationship with a great mental health professional Yeah. yeah. Um, and they offer me different things than a coach would, but I think it, it, um, one of the things that I've been learning recently I had back surgery in, in March was um, I'm still working through learning to trust my own limitations and what good what, what what different types of discomfort in my body mean and how much I am able to push myself and how much I you know where my where my where a physical limitation is and mm-hmm. in, in learning to listen to that. And um, that was tough because my experience most recently before surgery with physical therapy was trying really hard to push myself, but that not being good for what okay. my injury was. Yep. And that physical therapist really trying to challenge me in a way that they probably thought was good for me but was not good
2: for
0: me um so and and also like going through a whole variety of things and modalities in i mean you know sitting on a wedge when i'm working working with a desk that has you know that a variety of settings so i can stand and i can sit and i can do all these different things getting good sneakers um (laughs) You know, trying different types of yoga. Um, I have every ointment and cream you possibly can think of. (laughs) Um, I have stuff that has CBD in it. Um, Okay. um, But like you know, from having had different types of injuries that linger, it affects you psychologically.
1: It definitely does. It definitely does, yeah. It's always... Actually, I'll say this as a coaching philosophy, because this comes up for me all the time. The serenity prayer is like my life and coaching philosophy, because it just makes so much sense. Yeah. And even if you don't want to, if you want to take the prayer out of it, you know, and so it basically is, you know, um, grant me the the courage to change the things I can, the um, the peace to accept the things I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and I think one of the challenges for any coaching client is that we always have conflicting goals. And so, and that's part of it. So um, as an example, for people who are injured, you have this safety goal, or I want to make sure I'm safe and I want to make sure I'm not in pain and I'm, you know, but then you have this growth goal. I want to grow. I want to challenge myself. I want to push and like trying to know where the line is it's really you don't know until so you cross and they're like damn it i went too far yeah. and so that that's definitely something that when people have had injuries they have to keep more in mind that you know mm-hmm. and uh, and sometimes yeah we do think more about that growth and that push goal until our body bites us and
0: and i'm a push person anyways like that um i was i woke up from surgery <laughs> and i didn't even think about it and Uh, the woman said, what's your pain? And I gave her the scale. And my next question was, when can I get up and walk around? Yeah, It was was automatic. It wasn't like I had mentally said, I I was still coming out of anesthesia, but that's my mindset. Like, let's go, go, go. And, and that's good in one regard because it means that I'm self motivated, but Mm -hmm. it's bad in another that the nurse looked at me and she goes, um, we'll give you a few minutes. It's like <laughs> a few minutes. like yeah.
2: you
0: might want to make sure you're done with a, the anesthesia anesthesia's worn off and you need to sort of, you know, get your legs underneath you before you can get up and move around. But I just, um, I was reflecting on that recently because I've been working with a yoga teacher via mm-hmm. Zoom and um, we have, kind of scheduled certain days we do yin and then other days we do more to more of like um a pilates kind of a workout we do some weights we do some core and we call that the harder workout and there are days when i've been like i don't want to do the harder workout and she's like, well we don't have to and or um i'll say oh you know my my leg my back stuff shows up in my leg it doesn't show up in my back
2: Mm mm-hmm
0: and I'll say my leg is really bothering me. I don't want to do the hard stuff, and she'll she'll kind of reflect back to me like, um, you know, is it pain or is it psychological? Like, are you do you have a fear?
2: Or mm. Is
0: it that you are really feeling that thing? You know, and and she's not saying that's not real, but she's sort of asking me to think about. Do I not am I concerned about pushing myself because of pain or am I concerned about pushing myself because of a fear of pain
1: mm. yeah yeah it it can be hard it can be hard, but I always say this, this is one of the benefits of course of working with someone one on one you know versus in a class because they can be a little bit more tuned in and and uh yeah help and they you can kinda...
0: watch your positioning and they can also see your facial expressions and they can ask you specifically for your feedback and they can help you modify what you're doing. For
1: sure. For sure. Um, yeah, well that's, that's good that you have an instructor that is so attentive and yeah, tuned in.
0: Yeah, she's very good. I mean, I, I liked, I liked her when she was teaching group classes that I was taking and then she and I developed a friendship and actually had her on my podcast and then, um, we had been doing one-on-one before I had surgery and she had really helped me build some strength that I had lost and then um, she knew I was having surgery and then with pandemic
2: she mm. said,
0: well, she let's zoom and I was like this is fantastic and then we were doing once a week and then twice a week and now we do three times a week and
2: wow that's great
0: one of my big um, wins was I was very excited because my balance was affected from my back injury and also the pain medication they get gave me made me a little dizzy so i was having doubly issues with my balance and i was able to step into like my underwear and my pants without like leaning over or sitting down over or stumbling Mm -hmm. i was like i put my pants on
2: The little things.
0: And she was like, that's balance. <laughs> She's like, that's awesome. And I was like, like I was kinda embarrassed to say it, but I was also kind of proud of it because yeah. I did recognize that it was it was a thing that I hadn't been able to do for a very long time because of my injury. So when you had your injury, did you ever feel bad like it was your fault that you had done this to yourself?
1: Oh yeah, many times. Uh, sometimes it was because it was my fault. (laughs) So, um, I'm thinking about, well, sometimes it was just dumb luck, you know, like you're playing basketball, you jump, you land on somebody that, you know, I don't think that's my fault, but, um, it was sophomore year in college. I tweaked my hamstring, my left hamstring, and I was kind of nursing it and then the day of the race like coaches like how you feel i'm like i can go so i warmed up i got ready it was a 55 meters indoors and i got out the blocks he was doing good and then snap and like I, I i like hopped like i don't know half the way cuz i was just going so fast and i just hopped and i was like that was so stupid i wasn't ready why did i come back so early and um of course my leg was black and blue and i was out for an extended period of time so that was that was a spot where i was pretty mad at myself for kind of trying to push through and um you know some in retrospect like i didn't you know you're young you're 20 or so like i didn't realize that it could go that wrong um and then i'm also thinking about uh, (laughs) a time i was showing off It was actually that later that summer, um, and I was with the Americorps program, and we had a little music on, and this really big, tall football player like was dancing, and he did, he did like a fake split, and I'm like, and everyone was cheering for him, and I'm like, that's not a split, so I get up, bust a couple moves, drop down into a split, jump up from the split, and I'm like, now that's a split, and I was like, oh damn, I think I just tore my hamstring again. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was limping for about a month and I'm like, what the heck? That's not like good for showing off. I'm like, oh, so I was definitely mad about that one.
0: The day before I had my ruptured ulcer, I did a 10k. <laughs> oh,
1: wow. Yeah.
0: And I had like record I walked it. I didn't run it. I yeah. I walked it and I had record I had a record time. I walked it in whatever Okay. And then I and I remember there was actually a picture of me crossing the finish line. And I was like, I was probably having a bleeding ulcer at that point.
2: Yeah. And I remember
0: being in the emergency room. I'm like the next day. And I said, there can't be anything wrong with me. I did a 10K yesterday. And she was like, yeah, your blood pressure is crazy. Um, Like your pain scale is a seven. Like there's probably, you probably need some surgery. And I was like, no.
1: And I think, I mean, of course, we get over it, hopefully, and we don't blame ourselves. But, you know, initially, I think when we do something that we think was silly, that we probably would blame ourselves. But
0: um. when I also have to be reflective of the fact that we ha- we have this constitution and we have these psychological motivators that, like, even in extreme pain or even in that process that that also motivates us to recovery and good things. So For sure. like I was remarking the other day, like June 5th was my three months since my surgery. And, you know, I'm taking way less pain medication. I can step through my underwear. I'm doing some type of yoga three days a week. I've been able to get back in the garden. Like my weight may not be where I want it to be, but like there are a lot of people that are, are post three months post back surgery and don't have the this kind of outcome. So like, I'm thankful for every little bit of progress I've gotten out and ridden my bike a couple of times.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: you know, I'm not ready to lift like a picnic table over my head, but um, I feel like I'm getting stronger every day. And uh, again, can't be more thankful that I had that availability and access to a surgeon and surgery right before
2: mm, yeah.
0: the pandemic shut everything yeah. Because yeah. I can't imagine having gone through the pandemic with the type of pain that I had been having, you know?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's good that you had a, a good outcome and are noticing all those, those good things because I'm sure that that just helps reinforce the recovery if you're aware and thankful of the good things, even if they're Maybe some little blips along the way.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm excited to hear you start this podcast, Charles. I think that you you're gonna be fantastic at it.
1: I um I'm looking forward to it. I, I have to admit like in the last week I probably got a little distracted and discouraged and you know, like like you talk about the imposter syndrome. Of course we all when we start to put ourselves out there, wonder what people are gonna think and will they judge us and, and so why um, you were
0: eating dessert.
1: <laughs> I think it was more I was just burnt out from a week of being trying to be vegan and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to splurge a little bit, you know, and so but um uh, but we'll we'll get back to it. Uh, Are
0: you normally a vegan?
1: No, no. It was just um I have experimented with it for short periods of time just to kind of see, you know, and kind of pay attention just more as an experiment and um but uh and I actually, this last experiment, I went probably like a week pretty good. It actually, it was good. I felt like whatever combination of things I was doing, it felt nourishing, I felt energized. And so, so yeah. And, uh, it was also easy. And so that's always, you know, like I kind of got into this rhythm of, okay, rice, vegetables, flour, oil, um, salt, pepper, you know, like you just kind of get into this little fruits. And so it's like, all right, it was just really easy. And so that was, and, uh, yeah. So I I may experiment again in the past, but yeah.
0: Anything you'd like to say for final thoughts?
1: Well, I mean, one, I want to thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. It, it's been helpful for me to kind of go through this experience with you. I think it'll be a good launching spot for me, and so yeah. So I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity, and yeah, thankful for the friendship, and yeah. That's I think that's about about it.
0: I'm grateful for the friendship as well. I've really enjoyed meeting you through the coaching community. I I have loved hearing your voice. I think you, whenever I've described you, you are just one of the like kindest, um, most centered people I've met. There have been a bunch of people that I've met through coaching that I've been really grateful for their friendship. Um, I... Can't wait to see what you do podcast-wise, but what, whatever you choose to do next, I know you'll be successful at it. And it is because of your approach and your style. And I know it comes from a great wealth of experience. But I really love the way that you break down concepts and explain things. And I, I feel like you have a really beautiful teaching style as well. So,
1: well, thank you for that. Hopefully I'll make you proud.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. This is really like, this was a, such a great connection for me today. And I, I appreciate um, you playing podcast with me. And uh, this is like, this is my podcast. This is exactly how it goes. This is is what it's about. This is like, I know we meandered through a lot of different topics and subjects and, but this is um, exactly how my podcast goes and I I love this and I love learning and I love hearing about your story and getting to know you a little bit more so thank you so much
1: you're very welcome
0: and if people <laughs> want to find you online how do they do that
1: Googling Charlesinnes.com charlesinnis.com probably would be the easiest way <laughs>
0: alright and uh, we'll, we'll stay tuned for the podcast take care
2: <laughs> alright bye, bye. bye.
0: Felicia is produced by Felicia Ryan and she retains all broadcast rights and copyrights to this program. Theme music provided by Stephanie Griffin. Sound editing and technical support by Heather McCormick. Hi Felicia is supported in part by a generous grant from the Malden Cultural Council and recorded in cooperation with UMA Urban Media Arts in downtown Malden. You can find Hi Felicia on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, and most platforms that podcasts are found. Please take the time to like, write a review, and share this program. You are our ears. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Hi Felicia or how to support this podcast or to suggest future guests, please go to www.feliciaryan.com. That's www.feliciaryan.com. And again, thanks for listening.